You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Uh, Welcome to Unscripted with Alex. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining me and having this conversation today and sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So it's going to be a vulnerable story that you're sharing. So take your time throughout all of it. We're going to be talking about your IVF experience loss that you had throughout that experience. And then um, we've got a second part to it as well, where you've had a donation that you've provided. So it's quite a big episode that we're going to split into two parts. But let's start off at the start with your IVF experience. So you have written some blog posts around this and you wrote something that I found to be very interesting that I had never sort of thought of before. And this was around your decision to going down the IVF pathway. You had a conversation with your dad. Yes. And he basically said, have you ever taken a pill or used any protection to prevent a pregnancy? And you were like, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, what's the difference then between doing that and using a medical intervention of some kind to create a birth. Yes. So um, prior to like deciding to do IVF, I tried pretty much everything, like all the natural alternatives, another medication called Clomid. Oh, yeah. Yep. I tried absolutely everything and I really didn't want to do IVF because I felt like it was really meddlesome and I thought, what if I'm just not meant to have a baby and if I'm trying to force this pregnancy, what if I end up with something that something not good, basically, if I come up, if I ended up with a, an unwell child or something was to happen. So I guess a bit scared to also think that I was potentially forcing something that wasn't meant to happen. And yeah, I just, I guess I didn't really understand much about IVF. I'd kind of just decided from the beginning that I wasn't going to go, or I wasn't going to go that far because when I actually met my husband, I said to him, look, if you want babies like, don't date me because I don't want children. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) $50,000 later. (laughs) Um, I do want children. (laughs) I changed my mind. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I, from the beginning, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced, but um, I started to sit down with my dad and he just really kind of put it into perspective um, about like, what's the difference? Like you've used medicine to avoid being pregnant. So why not use medicine to get pregnant? And there was just something in that that I was like, you know what, I am being weird about it. And so then I actually started really looking into it and properly considering it and probably, yeah, doing a bit more research, which I hadn't done before that. I thought, oh, yeah, I just I just didn't want to do it. Mm. So were you, did you say 23 or 25 when you first started uh, We've been 20, well, so we're, yeah, it would have been 23. So I knew pretty much, so we got, I got married when I was 23 um, and then right from the beginning, from when we got married, basically, we started trying because I knew that I was always going to have an issue based on my period being so irregular. Like I only got my period when I was 15. So fairly late compared to everyone else. But even then, like the cycle was 80 days, 20 days, 30 days. It was just, it was just out of control. Like, and so I went on the pill really early to try and regulate that. And so I just kind of thought, I'm just not going to have any luck here from my previous experiences of my cycle. And I was correct. Like as soon as I went off the pill, my cycle was like, I've got 
diaries of me tracking my cycle for months and months and months of like how long I would bleed for, how long it was until I bled again. And there was literally one one cycle that was 80 days. And I'm like, how do I figure out when I'm ovulating in that 80 days? So through all the tracking before we actually started doing any kind of like medical support or alternative to try and help us conceive, I was doing all that tracking. I was doing temperature. I was doing the spits or the saliva tests, the other mucus tests, checking my cervix, all these other things. And I could just never pinpoint, like I took it to the doctor, like three months of temperatures. And she was like, this does not make, this doesn't tell me anything. So I literally, when, when I turned 23, we started trying, I gave it six months and then we went straight to the doctor and I said, I told them I'd been trying for 12 months because I had heard that unless you've been trying for 12 months, cause that's kind of an average normal time to fall pregnant. A doctor's not going to take you seriously or they're not, they're just going to say, give it another six months. So I just lied. <laughs> like, let's speed this process up. I, like, I know where this is going. Yeah. So um, I just said to them, look, I've been trying for 12 months. So that's, at that point, they straight away just got my husband in, tested him, did all sorts of hormone tests on me. I had a laparoscopy and died, checked that I didn't have endo. And was anything picked up or just that your cycle was just random? We just, uh, there's just... Yeah, we have no idea. It's a totally unexplained infertility for me. My husband's completely fine, um, but there's something in that where the sperm and the egg meet or me ovulating that just doesn't happen. So even like on the Clomid, which makes you ovulate and being like having tests regularly to check my, in my blood tests to check ovulating. Even then, like even when that was perfect, we still weren't falling pregnant. So I imagine there's something to do with where they were they weren't actually meeting in mm. my body, perhaps. Yeah, we don't really know what it was and because we've tried everything. <laughs> yeah. like it was just like this is like the last thing we can try. I mean, the body is such a mystery and we are kind of told this story that your cycle is 28 days and you ovulate around day 14 yeah. and it's a nice, beautiful little graph. Don't have sex because you'll fall pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which apparently, yeah, you fall pregnant at the drop of a hat yes. when you're in high school. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> when you try, it just it's not yeah, always that way. Exactly. Everyone's cycle can be very different. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you may never really know. Do you find yourself constantly reaching for sugary foods? It's no secret that eating too much sugar can wreak havoc on your gut health. Not only does it feed bad gut bacteria, but it can also cause inflammation and damage to the gut lining. Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol is here to help. Our simple four-week reset program is designed to remove triggers and unwanted microbes, supporting you through your sugar hangover and repairing the gut. So why wait? Start feeling better today with Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol. And so once you went to that um, doctor's appointment, was that where IVF conversation started or did you still have to sort of work through that process yeah. in your mind first? So they, they'll do like three months of the Clomid or three cycles of Clomid and then after that, or so, so obviously I had the operation to check for endo, which was the, and PCOS, there was nothing, um, nothing like that in there. It was totally normal. Um, from that point, I think we actually moved to Perth and I went to King Eddie at that point and I had given them my 
previous, like once I'd done those those three months of Clomid with this particular other doctor, he was like, IVF's your, your next option unless you want to try alternatives and just try a natural, nat- falling pregnant naturally. Um, so I went, I went to King Eddie. I spoke to them and told them our history and they actually put me on another round of Clomid, which you're not actually supposed to do because you just end up ovulating all your eggs out. Oh, <laughs> right. Because we've only got so many eggs. The Clomid forces you to ovulate and it doesn't, you can't actually tell how many eggs you're ovulating. So they don't like to do it for too long because, you know, they don't want you to waste all your eggs if it's not going to work. They actually put me on another three months of Clomid and to be honest, the Clomid was 10 times worse than any IVF drug I've been on, 100%. I would never go on Clomid. I would totally skip it. Just don't even bother with it. Go straight to an IVF clinic and try IUI. So that's the interuterine insemination where they actually, it's like a turkey baster and they'll like track your ovulation and they do it that way. Whereas the, the Clomid, either basically handed some pills and said, go home and try. Like we tried... At one point, we had sex every single day for an entire cycle, and that was horrendous. <laughs> Exhausting. <laughs> um, even my husband, like, after a week, he was like, this is not a good month. <laughs> like, In theory, that sounds like it should be a good thing. It's but really not. It's like, <laughs> all it's right, exhausting. it's time. It's just like, come on, come on, big boy. Just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just do it. get it done. <laughs> um, so what was happening with you in response to the Clomid? Just extremely hormonal, weight gain, acne. Like the mood swings were insane. Like I've ne- – and just being – so irrational and just unstable, I felt, the whole time. Partly, you know, you're going through this medication to try and get pregnant and it's not working, which doesn't help the matter that you're going through this hormone treatment. But I just found the effects of it on my my hormones and, you know, all those things that trigger that can be triggered with a hormone change just went out of control for me. Like, yeah, really bad skin, weight gain, really, really, really moody, like mm. so bad. <laughs> like my husband was getting ready to divorce me, I reckon. He was like, breathe. <laughs> so I'm being made to sleep with you every night yeah. and, and you're being, yelling at me. You're being a bitch the entire time. <laughs> yes, pretty much. So so then you started the IVF process yeah. after so I took, another three months. Yeah, I took, a, I took some time off after that okay. three months because when I spoke to um, King Eddie, they did say, we'll put you on the IVF wait list, but it's a three-year wait list for IVF in the public system. So that's mm. to not pay for it. And they hadn't, because they hadn't actually, as well, it, they weren't running that program at the time. So it was like, well, wow, three years is a really long time to wait. And that's at the point where we started trying naturopathy, homeopathy, just, you know, not exercising, exercising, eating certain foods, doing all that kind of stuff, trying absolutely everything else um, before that's when I kind of started having those conversations with my dad going, oh, I don't know what to do, nothing's working. And then, yeah, he, when I kind of came around to the idea of IVF, I did a lot of research as to which clinic to go with and that's based on their stats and also just the reputations of those doctors. So I went to a clinic in Applecross and from there we just started the process of IVF, which is doing Tests, 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 and more tests before you actually do anything. And those tests are to check hormonal levels primarily yeah. or other... Genetic things? genetic things. So my husband's sperm got 
totally attested again. So I don't know how many samples my husband's ever had to give, but he is like, doesn't want to even look at a cup anymore. He's just like, oh, PTSD from <laughs> doing it into cups. <laughs> um, yes, doing samples like that, um, having ultrasounds, doing blood tests, doing, um, yeah, the DNA sort of blood tests where they look at um, any genetic disabilities that might pop up or like genetic conditions that could be passed down, um, trying to basically figure out is there a genetic reason that you're not falling pregnant as well as, you know, them just not actually meeting or hormonal? So tests like that and a lot of paperwork and a lot of waiting for those results to come in until they say, yep, you're a good candidate for IVF. Wow. It's such a big process already. Mm. Far out. You wouldn't, it's, I think unless you're going through it, it's not something that you would really understand just how tiresome and, yes. and taxing on your body that is. Yeah, and the constant blood tests. I have, like, when I get a blood test now, they're like, oh, you've had a lot of needles. I'm oh, like, wow. yes, I have. I know where the good vein is as well. <laughs> just go right here. It's right here. There's <laughs> a big hole in my arm, just right behind that hole. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. Yeah. And so now... How many years has it been before you get your actual first round? So I think from the time of contacting the IVF clinic, it would have been maybe six months or because, you know, they've got to, you've got to wait for appointments and that kind of thing. Probably six months for all those tests to come back and then to finally get your appointment to start. So once you start the cycling, you're, so this is a collection cycle because um, it depends what kind of IVF you're doing. Like if you're doing IUI, you don't necessarily need to do a collection because they're not taking any eggs out of you. They're just getting you your hormones to a point where you on paper and clinically are ovulating so that they can then have the sperm ready to put in at the perfect time. Is that the turkey-based method? Yeah, that's the, okay. that one. So that's like an assisted yeah. F- yeah. Uh, fertility. Okay. Basically, like uh, I've got a, a few friends who've done that, like if their husbands have been FIFO and they just haven't been able to be in the same place at the right time. Yeah, there's different types. But for me, obviously, we were going to be harvesting some eggs and my husband is donated, like, yeah, you know, harvesting his sperm. So the first round, they basically... It's a bit of a trial and error. Like I wasn't expecting the first round to go very well and it didn't. Um, so the first collection cycle, you are, you're, ex- you're stimulated to ovulate and throughout that they're doing blood tests and scans to check how many follicles are on your ovaries and just to check your hormones levels because then they can kind of tell based on that when the e- eggs are going to be ripe to harvest or when, when, they, when they get to a certain size and your blood is saying a certain thing. I don't know like, I don't know terms. the technical terms for it all, but this is my understanding. And then they decide, say, yep, we'll give you this trigger, which triggers your body to ripen the eggs within like 24 hours or 48 hours. And then you go in for a collection. They're constantly measuring the follicles to see how big they are, to see how ripe they are. And even though you've got a follicle, it doesn't even, doesn't necessarily mean you've got a mature egg in there. So it's a bit of a gamble. So I went in not really expecting very much and I didn't really get very much out of it. I think we got, we got three eggs. And so when they, so what they do is they collect the eggs and at the same time, your husband or the donor, wherever you're getting your sperm from is doing their donation or being defrosted. Um, And so once they've got the eggs, they literally go straight to the clinic and then they do the fertilization. It's kind of all very time. It's timed all perfectly. Like there's really not very much room for error. Um, and so we had three eggs collected, and I think 
too fertilised and they've only got until day, uh, six days to actually reach a blastocyst stage, which is the stage just before they hatch and it's like a certain amount of cells. So the best case is a five-day blastocyst um, or embryo and six, they give it six days. If, if it's a good-looking embryo and they're like, oh, it might make it, then they'll, they'll, give, it, they'll give it that extra, six, that, that extra day. Um, so we got two embryos. Basically from then... <laughs> So, so this is so all in a petri dish. <laughs> yeah, this is all in a petri dish and there's so many variables. So yeah. for us, we had a fresh transfer. So there's a fresh transfer or a frozen transfer. We did the operation to get the eggs out and then we had five days and after five days we had an egg transfer so uh, or embryo transfer, should I say. Um, the, other egg, the other embryo was frozen. So this was a fresh transfer and that t- turned into nothing. We didn't get pregnant. It wasn't a miscarriage. We just... It was just nothing. So <clears throat> when that happens, it's kind of this point where you're like, it's, it becomes a, a time thing. Like to, for that to happen, it's devastating that didn't happen. But for you to try again, you've got to wait an entire cycle. You've got to wait to get your period again. And then you've got to wait until your bloods get to the right point again for you to... And so, and so from that point where you have your period after that, that cycle that didn't work, you have a start your hormone treatment again, which is a needle every day or two, depends what um, medications they use and things like that. But for me, it was a needle every day um, up until a certain point. So when it's just a transfer cycle, you don't have to have the um, trigger needle. It's just it's just the one the one kind of needle. And then maybe there's another one. There might be another needle. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell. I mean, I there's remember. obviously so many. So hang on. So with this one, so the first one was the fresh transfer. Fresh transfer. And then the other egg, because you had two eggs, the other one was frozen. Yes. So for the second round, we're just trying to prep the body, get yes. it all nice and yep. juicy and that's ready correct. for this frozen egg to be then put in. Yes, is that correct? correct. So yes. that there's a, your uterus is all It's all delicious and, you know, <laughs> nice and smushy and ready for an embryo to implant. Yeah. So... It, we got to the point where we're like, yep, it's been booked in. This is the day you're going to have your transfer. Fantastic. We got a call the morning of the transfer and the embryo didn't survive the thaw. Oh so straight then we didn't even get to do a transfer. So that's a whole nother month, month of cycling that we have, like, didn't wait. Obviously, like, I look at it now, I'm like, didn't get wasted because we got there eventually. But, you know, it's just a whole nother month that you've spent waiting so for us, we didn't have any embryos left after that, so we had to do another collection cycle. So this time, because they had my history from the last cycle, they changed my medications up. And when I went in for my collection, we actually got 21 eggs, which was amazing. Wow. Um, so yes. from the first one, we had two. Three, three, or three, three eggs. Three and one yep. didn't make okay. To the next one, 20 21. One. So that's a bit too many. <laughs> that's like being so that's overstimulated. overstimulated. So when we collected that, they automatically were like, you can't do a fresh cycle. You need to let your body recover and then we'll start you, get your hormones back to a base level and then start again. So that was, so from that 21, we got 14 fertilised, but only 12 made it to day six. So we had like, we had a bunch of day fives, but they had a couple more day sixes. So we had 12 viable embryos in the freezer from that point, which was amazing because like having, yeah, going from two to 12. I was like, this is so many opportunities. But from that point when I was like, wow, we've got 12. I was like, I can't do this 12 times. Like this is, uh, so that kind of plays into part as to how I knew what was going to happen with any leftovers. Because from that point, I was like, there's going to be leftovers. I'm not going to keep going. 
Um, so right. w- that's when I started thinking about <clears throat> what happens to those leftovers. But anyway, so we had that, fro- they're all frozen. So we went into a fresh, a new cycle and we had a frozen transfer and I fell pregnant with my daughter. And that was the first pregnancy I ever had. Um, and I actually thought that I didn't, uh, that I'd having my, I thought I was having my period because I had spotting. So the Mm. day, so they give you, so you have your transfer and then you've got the 10 days or like the two week wait, which is horrendous. It's like two weeks of waiting for that blood test to find out if you're pregnant or not was absolutely horrendous. (laughs) It's such a long time to wait and you just, they tell you not to do a test. And, you know, I was like, no, I won't do a test because I don't want to get a false negative and be disappointed when it might be a positive or like get a positive. And then by the time I get my test, it's a negative. So I just totally left it. It just all feels like it's such an anxious waiting game, a constant thing on your mind. It is. I just want to jump back just a point. After you had that overstimulation, how were you feeling in your body? Yeah, so <clears throat> I was definitely on the couch for a couple of days. So every time, every egg that they've harvested is a needle prick in your ovary. So <laughs> you've been stabbed 20, 21 times, possibly even more because they, they literally pop every single follicle and get whatever is in there. So there may have been more follicles, but it was only 21 mature eggs. So, and how are they doing this? Because yeah, yeah, so, yeah, it's that's just okay. like in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> this needle going into like this ovary collecting yeah. eggs, but this is inside your body. Yes, it so is. So, how are you awake? Are you no, asleep? It's an operation, so you're okay. fully asleep, um, and it's a transvaginal oocyte collection. So you go through the vaginal wall. So they basically have you with your garden on display, and then <laughs> they have like the the quacky thing that opens you up and then they put the needle through the wall of your vagina and then that goes up into your abdomen or up to find your ovaries yeah. basically. So they might do that two sides or they, if depending on where your ovaries are sitting, cause it's obviously not going to be perfect. And then that's they how they do it. Yeah. So you're quite sore because you've had say, a team of doctors feeling? down there, but it's all done on such a small scale as well. So you know, think about how small an egg is, you know, it's not a giant needle that we would get in our arm. It's a microscopic sort of extremely small needle, but they're still in there moving your body, like in your guts around to try and like get to all the sides of the ovary. So yeah, I was pretty bruised. I felt very bruised and sore and just achy for the next two or three days and quite bloated as well. Yeah. Mm. But like other than just like localized pain or discomfort, that was pretty much the only thing. Like when I had the laparoscopy, that's different because they fill your body up with the, the gas and then you get the back pain from like the shoulder pain and stuff from the CO2 gas that they fill your tummy up with. So it wasn't probably as bad as the laparoscopy, but, um, and what yes. about energy and emotions and stuff? Were you oh, it was a big emotional that, dump? Right? Yeah, okay. huge because you've been overstimulated, and then as well you get that hit that you've got to wait another you've got to wait another month to have a transfer. You're just like, oh my god! But I, it's that kind of silver lining. You're like, oh, I just got twelve. But if you didn't get twelve, you'd just be like, this is devastating. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what did you do during that time to help process it all? Like just in mindfulness or trying to wait out that time did you do anything or did you kind of just sit in it no at that time I wasn't really I didn't really do any mindfulness or anything like that I pretty much just sat on the couch and rolled with it yeah ate chocolate and 
relaxed Good. and just thought I've got a whole week, I've got a month up my sleeve to just relax and I can't do anything more about it. We've got all these eggs. Cause like, as soon as you get out, the first thing you go is how many eggs do you get? Like they go four to uh, 21. I'm like, Oh, we've got some good odds here. So like as the next kind of five days, they, the, the clinic is always calling you and going, Oh, we've got some really good ones. They give you an update of your embryos yeah. throughout the next five days. So you're constantly waiting for the call to be like, how many made it? Yeah. So, and the other thing that you said there was you got a little bit of spotting bleeding. So yes. it is common to get a little bit of bleeding when an implantation yes. is happening. That's, so on that yeah. too, so I had the, the blood test booked in for the end of the two-week wait. The last cycle where, the, where, there, where there, was no, there was no pregnancy with that one embryo, I didn't get my period until after I had the blood test. So like I was like, okay, I was thinking, I haven't got my period yet. I might be pregnant. And then I went and got my blood test in the morning. I'm like, yay. And then I got my period at lunchtime. I was like, you are kidding me. And then I got the call saying, no, there's, you're not pregnant. I'm really sorry. And so this time I went and got my blood test and I was like, I still haven't got my period. You know, I'm, you know, I might be pregnant again. And then I got spotting at lunchtime and I was like, you are kidding me. I was like, again. And so I like literally went home from work and I was just devastated. Like, so you just took it straight I just took it. That, I took it as the, I was getting my period. Didn't even bother doing a pregnancy test to, to check. My husband was like devastated, called my mom, having cried to my mom. I was like, oh, it's not happening. Like, it's just not going to come back. And we're sitting there and we still hadn't had this call from the clinic. And I was thinking the clinic called by now, like last time they called at lunchtime. And it's like getting towards three o'clock, four o'clock. And I'm like, still haven't had this call. So I called them. I said, hey, I'm just chasing up my results. Like, you know, just, just wanting confirmation of what I thought I already knew. And they're like, yep, everything looks great. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, congratulations, you're pregnant. And I was like, no. I was like, I'm, I've, I'm getting my period. And she's like, no, the blood tests from this morning say that your pregnancy is tracking beautifully. Like your hormones are great. You're probably just spotting from the implantation. And like, so then it went from like total despair of like, that's it. We're going out tonight, getting a great bottle of wine and just getting fat <laughs> to like, oh my God, I'm I pregnant. can't touch alcohol now <laughs> for another like what do I do? 12 months even if you're breastfeeding. Yeah. And I said to her, I was like, so, so what do we do now? And she's like, nothing. She's like, we'll, we'll get in touch with you in your next appointment to like track how the pregnancy is going and. Congratulations, oh the God. end. I was like, what? So did you jump straight? Like, was your husband there at the time? He was there at the time. And okay. he's like, I didn't have them on speaker because I wasn't expecting, like, this grand announcement. And, like, I, said, I just looked to my husband, like, I'm pregnant. And he's like, what? And so it was just, like, this real total weird, confused, like, we just went from one extreme to the other. So it was a really amazing moment. And then I called my mum back and I'm like, um, <laughs> so, I'm so sorry to do that to you, but I'm actually pregnant. And she was like bawling her eyes out. And I was just, it was a really, really lovely sort of thing. But it was like this moment of disbelief because by this point it had been like five years of trying to get pregnant, um, just, just to get pregnant. And did yeah. you get like straight on to your apps, like what to do with pregnancy? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know. That's, that's what I said. I was like, what do I do now? And I was like, I don't feel like I'm qualified enough to be pregnant. <laughs> you don't have to be qualified to be pregnant. You're a woman. It's like when you get your baby, you're like, what do I, what do, I do now? I don't yeah. feel like I should be allowed to take this creature home. <laughs> yeah. Do not need a certificate? <laughs> oh my gosh. And so now over those next few months, how are you feeling? Are you anxious that you're going to hold it or Yeah, I think what? for my first pregnancy, I wasn't anxious at all. I was just like, yes, we're pregnant. Like for me, that was the biggest hurdle was actually getting pregnant um, at that point. And so the pregnancy went 
perfectly well. Like I had no issues. I had a really comfortable pregnancy. I had a few things like there's that thing where your pelvis moves too much. I'll, I'll come okay. up with an A uh, in a minute. Something pubis. It's yeah, like pubis, inflammation. Um, pubis the- dysfunction. Uh, Symphysis pubis That's dysfunction. It. Yeah. Yeah. So I had that from really early on. So the relaxant really kicked in and I was very bendy for quite some time. So I had to wear like the brace for a really long time uh, or like from very early on. What did that feel like? Oh, incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. So you can't sit down. I was like working in an office job and I was like, I can't sit down wow. in this. So, and my office was like, I was working in local government at the time and my office was so far away from, from the front counter and I would always be seeing having people come and want to speak to me, like at the actual office chambers sort of thing. I was just like, oh. So I'd have to walk the longest way. And then by, by the time I got up to like eight months, I was just like, I need to move my desk. <laughs> this is not working. I'm surprised you made it up to eight months. <laughs> I literally gave birth at 35 and 5. So I had like pregnancy was great. Everything was looking normal. There was no reason to think that I was going to go early. And then um, I was going to finish on the Friday, but I just said to them, I said, look, on the Wednesday, so I'm going to finish on the Wednesday and just take like a week down south. And they're like, yep, cool, no worries. So I finished on the Wednesday, jumped in the car. We came down here. Oh, no, it must have been Thursday. Yeah, Thursday morning we jumped in the car, came down south, and Thursday night my waters broke. <laughs> I know, I was like, so much for this baby moon of like going away. So um, 35 and 5, and because they don't birth children here, and they don't birth children in Bunbury. Oh, you had to go back to Perth. I had to go straight back up to Perth. So I got ambulance. And it was like, it wasn't an emergency situation. Like my waters just popped. And I was like, oh, oh, what do I do now? And so I went to the hospital. And so I wasn't like in labour. I was kind of just sitting around waiting for labour to start. So they, they were like, oh, you're kind of at that point where we don't want to hold you from having your baby, but we're not going to force, we're not going to make it come on quicker. So we're just going to wait. So, firstly, talk about um, intuition. <laughs> I know, right? There's that. I'm sure women's intuition gets stronger from pregnancy and as a mum. Yes, definitely. And that was definitely like a little yeah. sign. I don't know why. I just was like, yeah, I'm just gonna. And one of my friends, I said to my friend, oh yeah, on the Thursday, I was like, we're just gonna go down to Busso for the weekend and like hang out with mum and dad before we have the baby. And she's like, oh, are you sure you should be going? that far away, this close to being, I was going to say being baby mood. <laughs> yeah, and I was, like, I was like, yeah, it'll be fine. Like no one gives birth at 35 weeks and uh, I do. <laughs> so your waters had broken. You had to go back to Perth. And what was, because sometimes when the water breaks, they put you on a bit of a timer and you've got to basically birth within 24 hours because they're afraid of infection or they try to want to move things along yeah. in the first sort of 24, 48 hours. Because it was premie they didn't want to move it along. They so, were like, okay. they didn't do, they, that's why they said, it was kind of like, we're not going to move you along. Like normally we would, we would either get you to go, get you moving or we'd stop you, mm. like stop this by giving you medication. And they just said, we're just going to let it happen naturally because baby was a good size. There was really no other factor that would have had them concerned about anything. Like she was a healthy baby by all means. And she was like, when she was born, she was a normal sized baby. So I'm kind of glad I didn't go to 40 weeks because she would have been giant. What was she? What <laughs> she was like seven pounds. Okay. So like a normal, normal baby, average yeah. baby. Um, and were you in hospital then being monitored from that point? Yeah. So from the point of presenting with my waters had been broken, um, that was it. I was in hospital they wouldn't let me have a bathing or anything, so I never got that. But um, she was posterior, so I had really bad 
pain. Like I had an epidural as quickly as I could because the back labour was just mm-hmm. incredible. Like I, my hat's off to any woman who does not use pain medication for giving birth. Like I just think they're wonder women. I couldn't do it. Everybody is different and like you said, it depends on the positioning of baby and, and all sorts of things that come into play as to birthing. Yeah, it was and whether you do it with medication or without medication or C-section or without. Oh, I just, if you feel happy and yeah. um, empowered by your birth, then that's the best Well, thing I never ever. even, I never went to any birthing classes. I never even thought about a birth plan. Like I literally, it was like when I went in, they're like, what's your birth plan? I'm like, whatever you guys tell me to do, like <laughs> get the baby out. Get it out. <laughs> like I don't know. Um, I was like, I didn't really, I, all I knew that I was that I didn't want forceps or the vacuum. And I, if, if, if we could avoid a C-section, then that's great. But, like, medication-wise, I was like, oh, no, I'm happy to have a... If it's too painful, I'm having an epidural. Like, there's yeah. no point in doing it if I don't have to. But, but all of that is your birth plan yeah, there, suppose, though. You yeah. already had some ideas in your mind of what you wanted. Yeah. So that's sort of... I see, like, yeah. Instagram pages now of women that have these most beautiful, like, altars and, like, these beautiful, like, hypno things and essential oils and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I just was so, that was not, I wish I had have thought about it a bit more because I could have made it a bit more special. But I don't know. I just, I think we just at that point where we just wanted a baby. I was like, I don't even care how it gets here. Just get it out and <laughs> put it in my arms. <laughs> and so how long did that take then for from when your water broke to when your baby was um, born? It would have been... 32 hours. So, so it would have been 24 hours of just kind of sitting in hospital beds waiting for something to happen. Um, and it slowly started did happening, um, but it just wasn't like wasn't actually active. It was just kind of a bit painful, a bit uncomfortable. But then when it kicked in, labor, like active labour or like me being in the birthing suite would have only been six hours. Okay. Um, so she did actually come pretty quickly, I suppose, because I know there's some people that spend a really long time in that birthing suite. <laughs> and as soon as the pain kicked in, you had the epidural and then was it just you and your husband sitting there just ch- chilling no. out waiting? Or? Well, no, it was my husband falling asleep on, on the bed over Typical. there and me just talking to the nurse. And she's like, you need to just have a bit of rest now. And I'm like, oh, but I'm chatty. Like I was just like having a good old chat. But yeah, like it was just my husband. Oh, my mum did come up because she was part of our kind of plan she she chucked the dog because we took the dog down to Bustleton with us as well so she chucked him in her car and all the stuff that she would need for like a week because she was going to stay with us for the first week and that was part of my plan as well I was like I wanted that support mum was like I'll cook you all your food and wash all your clothes and everything that didn't happen with the second child which it would have actually been better but with the first child yep she came and she gave us the best royal treatment possible so and she Never actually experienced her own births. Um, she went, had an emergency C-section with both me and my sister. And so back then they didn't have epidurals. They just knocked them out. Oh, so wow. she never actually got to have her baby, her really give birth to her children. She kind of went to sleep pregnant, woke up not pregnant with a baby. Like she was going to watch my sister's pregnancies but or at births, but she ended up having emergency C-sections as well. So I'd said to her, yes, absolutely, you can come to my births. Like I don't... Um, you're welcome. So my mum was there as well, but she kind of just hung back and she just watched. But um, so she was there as well, which was really nice. Oh, that's such an amazing, yeah. precious thing to share. My mum was at mine as well, and I I loved that. I, I loved it as well. There. It's one of those things you've got to have the matriarch, you know, or like you know, it's just I feel like that's really a tribal sort of thing that 
you know, women having the women's circles and stuff, you've got to have that kind of circle of women around you as well. And I'm like, he's not going to know, like my husband, as as much as he can give me his sympathy or like, you know, attention, he doesn't know exactly what I'm going through. Whereas mum, she's done labour. She knows exactly what I'm going through. So again, my pregnancy, my birth wasn't that one where I needed help during, because I'd had epidural, I was just chilling for most of the time. So, um, and then even, yeah, the pushing stage was not really that long, like, yeah, it would have been like an hour of pushing maybe okay. or not even. I don't even know. See, that's the thing. You don't even know how – I don't even know how long I pushed for. I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> looking at a clock. <laughs> like, I don't – I think I must have checked in. With, I know that my pushing was an hour and I don't know how I know that. Now that you've said that, I don't know – because you're not really aware of time. No, not at so all. So I'm not sure how I knew that, but I must have been tracking it somehow. Because, oh, actually, I do remember my mum saying, oh, you'll have your baby, you'll be born by two or something, and I was yeah. born at three. So, yeah, I think that must have been where that came in. Anyway, so you finally <laughs> you had your baby. baby. That's yes. amazing. Yes, and um, I had retained placenta as well. So I literally got my baby and then I could feel them doing things down there and, like, tugging on things, and then they were like, okay, well just give the baby to your husband and we're going to have to go and remove your placenta manually. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this was fine. Like, this is my first one. I just didn't think any different of it. And so I gave my baby to my husband and our baby, (laughs) our baby to my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I was wheeled off to theatre and um, the placement of the epidural was actually quite high or a bit higher. So when they they did total spinal block and it was this, honestly, the, the most interesting thing of this birth was getting the placenta removed because I remember watching it that I was wheeled into this thing and they had these big stirrups and I put my legs into these stirrups and they literally strap your legs in really tightly to these stirrups and there's a sheet going across between your knees so you can only you can't really see very much your spine's totally like you can't feel anything you're totally numb and I saw this woman put on a glove all the way up to her shoulder and she literally was elbow deep in my vagina, scraping out this placenta. And I saw her lift her elbow up above the sheet and there was like blood and stuff. And I just see it like flicking. Her oh my gosh. Um, and I was How like, did you process that? Well, I was kind of just like, oh, okay. And then that's when I started to kind of get a little bit like, oh, I don't think I. And I was like, I can't feel myself breathing because the epidural was so high. I couldn't actually feel myself breathing. And that's when I was like, oh my God. I'm not breathing. And then the doctor was like, good night. <laughs> just gave me something else. And so just you started not to, to, I started panic to panic attack. and he was like, the anaesthetist was like, yeah, she needs to go to sleep. Mm. So um, they should have given you maybe a pre-warning not to look down at what's yeah, going on. I don't know. I don't just, think anybody wants to see a big glove going on <laughs> up to the shoulder. I couldn't feel it. It was just like, yeah, this, it was just bizarre watching it. Cause I was like, I'm like in my head, I'm going, it's literally someone elbow deep in my vagina right now. And I can't feel it. Like, And now I can't breathe. <laughs> and now I can't breathe. And now I'm not breathing. <laughs> So, yeah, so by the time I actually woke up from that and then got, like, by the time that went happened and I got back to my baby would have been three or four hours. And so even they, and they, they didn't really communicate a great deal to my husband. So he was kind of thinking, oh, she's been gone for a while. Like, I hope everything's okay. So, yeah, it was, for me, that was just my normal baby experience. It was nice. Like, I didn't have, any, I didn't have anything to compare it to, but it was, yeah, it was entertaining, I suppose. <laughs> So from that birth, how long did it take you to decide to try and conceive again? Because obviously with conceiving again, there's lots of things coming into play. One, you already have one baby and you're trying to manage timing and you've got a toddler running around. And two, you're probably thinking about 
those frozen embryos? Yes. Or? So for me, again, it was a timeline thing. I didn't want to waste any more time. I felt like every time, every month that I had my period that we weren't actively trying to have a a child or doing IVF was a wasted month. I didn't breastfeed for very long. I only breastfed for six weeks with uh, my daughter because I had uh, dysphoric milk ejection reflex. So that's right. And I didn't know at the time that that's what it was. I just thought I can't do, I hated it. I hated breastfeeding. And even when I went into my next birth, I was like, I would, I was thinking about the milk and I was thinking I would rather give birth three times than breastfeed because the feeling of it was just so horrible. But I didn't know that at the time. I only found that out with my um, son. But So obviously that's going to be a big topic in itself, but can you just give us a, like a quick snapshot of what is yeah. it and what does it feel like? So the dysphoric milk ejection reflex is when you have a letdown, you have a decrease in dopamine and increase in estrogen, and you get this kind of feel, feeling of dread in your gut and I guess really negative emotions to... And it's like, it just makes you feel sick in your head as well. You're like, it's, it's not a, it's, you're not thinking nice things in your head either. Like I was really resenting my child and like I was to the point where I was wondering if I was having um, postnatal depression because, but it was only when I was breastfeeding and it was just in the neck, like the, the first five minutes of breastfeeding because she was preemie, she was syringe fed and express fed from the very beginning because she didn't have the latch and she was jaundice. So she couldn't, <clears throat> she couldn't stay awake long enough to feed and she just didn't have that suck yet. Um, so by the time I was ready to actually breastfeed, she had gotten so used to the bottle that she just couldn't latch. And because of this feeling, I just would wanted her, I just wanted to push the baby away. I just didn't want it on me. I was like, just get it off me. I can't deal with this feeling. And I just thought that that was breastfeeding. I just thought that's what breastfeeding was. And I just thought most women just put power through. As well, I had a really pain, painful letdown. Um, so it was just this cocktail of horrible feelings for me. And so I only express fed, like bottle express fed her um, for six weeks. And then I just went straight on to the formula. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an odd kind of thing. And I only found out about it with my son. So, which at that point when I did find out that, I was like, oh, I get it. And so when I understood those feelings and understood what the condition was, it was so much easier to manage and actually work through the feelings and, and the, the, like the physical and the, the mental feelings that came along with that. And eventually over time, it became less and less and less and less. And I was able to breastfeed quite happily and I enjoyed breastfeeding at the end. So I breastfed my son for 18 months. Far out. Isn't yeah. That's amazing. So, but it's just basically just being able to, well, ha- one, having a child that was good at breastfeeding and two, just knowing what I was dealing with and just knowing the, the beast that was DEMA, dysphoric milk ejection reflex. But that's the thing. Probably a lot more women have it, but they don't actually know about it and they just think breastfeeding's not for me. I can imagine that would give you a very strange sense of mum guilt, feeling like oh yeah, you should be breastfeeding and enjoying this moment and then but you would uh, hating it inside. Yeah. Even now thinking about it, it makes me feel sick. Like yeah. I just think oh, the feeling of breastfeeding to me was just horrendous. Like because you stopped breastfeeding earlier or well at six months at six weeks sorry did that mean that your period came back earlier yes I got my period back earlier so um we did try I thought "Mm, maybe the IVF has kicked 
my hormones into gear and maybe I'll be one of those people that just miraculously falls pregnant after IVF. No, I I was not. Um, So we pretty much started trying uh, about three months or or maybe not three months, maybe like six months and no, nothing, nothing was really happening. So when we just, when we realized that nothing was going to happen, we kind of said, okay, what kind of age gap do we want for our kids? And so it was around about that they would have been about two two years apart, but that's, that's, that's how, like, the timing that we worked it out. So I don't know how many months that is, like um, a year basically. Yeah. We started looking into IVF again because we knew, like, you've got to wait and you've got to do the cycle and then you've got to – there's just all the waiting in between. So – and as well, there was no guarantee that we were going to get pregnant. So, yeah, at about a year or maybe 13 or 14 months maybe, we went again. We went back to the clinic and we're like, yeah, we're ready to try again. And we did a trans, another, so they're all frozen transfers from this point because all the embryos are frozen. So we did one transfer, which was no result. So we didn't get pregnant. Then we did another transfer um, and I did fall pregnant to that one. And we lost that pregnancy at six weeks. And it was really odd, like that thing you're talking about intuition, like when I had, when I fell pregnant. So with IVF, most women may not even know that they're pregnant at six weeks just because life gets in the way. You're not necessarily tracking your pregnancy, but with IVF, you know, from the very moment you've had that transfer that you're potentially pregnant. So that puts you two weeks ahead. So once you find out you've already been pregnant a month by the way that the calculator works. So, but whereas like, you know, technically it's only two weeks, but it's a month. So because we're having the blood tests, the hormone, like the HCG um, levels, you're getting those tracked. So you pretty much know from the moment you're pregnant, you're you're tracking it. So seeing it go up and up and up. You're seeing it going up. So so most people wouldn't even know, but this whole time I'd been, like whole time, this, you know, two or three weeks that I'd been pregnant, I was like, oh, I just, I had this feeling like, and I can't even explain it. There was no physiological basis. Like I hadn't had any like physical feelings of this, but I just felt in me that this pregnancy was not the pregnancy. This pregnancy was not the one. Mm -hmm. I said to, I actually was working and I said to my friend, she's like, how are you feeling? Like my colleague. And I was like, oh yeah. I said, I said, I don't know. I just feel like this pregnancy is just not going to be the one. I feel like I'm going to miscarry for some reason. I said, wow. not based on anything, but it, I just feel like that. And then that afternoon I got a call from the clinic because I'd had a blood test in the morning and she, they're like, yeah, look, your HCG levels are going down. So we're fully expecting this pregnancy to be a miscarriage. And I was like, I actually knew that. Like, so I was disappointed obviously because I, because you know, of the, the time thing, like it was a really huge, I'm going to keep going back to it because the timeline thing for me was such a big deal. But I was like, oh, here we go. I've got to wait another whole month to try again. So it wasn't really the sadness in losing a child because at that point, like I hadn't actually connected with this pregnancy, okay. I guess. Yeah. But um, it was the fact that you had to start over. Yeah, it's the start that I just had to keep process. starting over. And mm. that was just a real mental hurdle for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so we lost that one at six weeks and it was just like, it was just like a normal period. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. And so then we did, once I had fully miscarried and then we had to obviously wait for that to happen, um, we started cycling again. And that's when I fell pregnant with my son, William. And yeah, then that pregnancy started a whole next chapter Mm. Um, so it was a completely normal pregnancy. He was actually quite a big baby. And so there was never any reason to necessarily look into 
any any deeper into like the placenta or anything or to have any there was no reason to have any concerns basically he was a big but ba- he was just a nice big chunky baby and your pregnancy <clears throat> how were you feeling in those totally normal i i wasn't anxious about even the miscarriage didn't make me anxious from it I mean, I probably did for the first six weeks until, or like, you know, the whole usual wait until the 12 weeks um, thing. But other than that, like, I don't even think we did a harmony test or anything. We were just, and we didn't do one of those with Penny either. We just, we kind of just went along with it. And then <laughs> it's kind of weird because it's like, I've got to jump back, but jump, jump forward. So he, we ended up losing William at 29 weeks. And I have this vivid memory of the last time I felt him mm-hmm. and like, and it was actually like 12, 24 hours after, like, I wasn't really on to, I was at the time was every night I was doing my kick count and, um, and like waiting and feeling for him. And every now and then he'd be a little bit slow to kind of just, but it was just, he was really, it was normal pattern of movement for him. It was, I felt him, the last time I felt him was on the Wednesday and the Wednesday night and I just remember it was like a really painful thing. And, and the day before, and that day I'd actually seen the doctor. Like I had the doctor's appointment on the Wednesday and she was like, yep, it looks beautiful. He's happy. His heart rate was doing the, everything that a baby was meant to be doing. And then sometime between Wednesday at 7 o'clock or 7 p.m. until Thursday 5 p.m., he passed away. And I... I said to my husband, he was just about to leave for work because he works shifts and I was sitting there with Penny and I was like, oh, I, he was literally just about to work. I said, I, I think I might just pop over to mum's. Like, you're, you, like I'll let you know, like I'm going to go. I haven't felt him move today really. I haven't felt him doing much today. So I'm a bit concerned and I was like, I might pop over to mum's and just like give Penny to mum and I will just might pop down to the hospital because I'm, I'm just not really feeling him. And um, so I think you know, at this point, sorry, my husband was at work. So I told him before he was at work that I had some concerns. And then when he was, was at work, because he works in Bunbury, we're down in Busso, um, I called him. I said, yep, yeah, I'm going to go to mum's, drop PJ off. And I'm just going to go to the hospital just to check, just, just to be sure. So I was like, see you, mum. Be back in 20 minutes. Um, and then anyway, so I got to the, the, um, the reception and I think, at that point, when I actually said to the person, what is wrong? When they said, oh, is everything okay? I said, I haven't felt my baby move. And I think for me, that was the point where I really started thinking, shit, I haven't felt my baby move. Um, sorry. No, it's okay. Take your time. <laughs> so anyway, so we're in at the hospital and... Um, the midwife is there and she's, I think she's actually, a stu- she was, must have been a student midwife because she, she couldn't really find the heartbeat, but there was a pulse, there was a, there was a beat of something and it was probably, it was, would have just been one of my, it would have been my heartbeat, but she's like, oh, I don't think we need to worry. I think I can, I can think I can hear it, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to call your doctor anyway, just in case. And I was like, at that point, I was like, oh, phew, okay, I'm touched a bullet. He, maybe he's okay. And then when my doctor came in and she, sorry. No, take, take a moment. Um, she came in and she had a slightly different machine. And 
as soon as she put it, like this was an ultrasound machine. The other one was just like the Doppler and like the the CTG thing, the pink bands. As soon as she came in and as soon as she put um, the ultrasound on my belly, I could just tell that he was gone. Um, you could just, I could just tell and... Yeah, there was just waiting, I think, the sound. Waiting to hear a heartbeat and no no heartbeat was one of the worst things and I was there by myself as well. Like, my husband was at work. So, um... You hadn't thought that... I hadn't thought it was even a possibility. Like, I was like... When they said it, they, they, I was like, what, this doesn't happen to me. Like, this doesn't happen to people that I know. Like, how is this, how is this even real? Like, it just didn't feel real at all. Like, I had kind of completely removed myself and disconnected from that moment that, like, so reliving it is a really odd sensation because... I'm reliving something that I completely disconnected to myself too. So, like, I can only really recall what, like, what I was, like, as you know, do you get what I mean? Like, it was... A survival mechanism, I yeah. think, is to disconnect, like you've said, to what's going on because it's unimaginable. Yeah, so I basically <laughs> called my husband and I, I went into this mode. Like, I've actually caught up. I caught up with midwives and my doctor afterwards, um, and they said I was saying the weirdest things, like I was saying, it's okay, it's all right, we'll be okay, we'll be able to manage this, it's fine, we'll just, we'll just like, we'll just make some changes and everything's going to be fine, we'll be fine, everything's going to be fine. Like I just kept kind of going over and saying things like that. Um, like I wasn't really processing it. I wasn't crying, like I was really sad and I, I kind of cried a little bit, but... I went into this really stoic sort of, no, nah, we've got this, it's okay, we'll, we'll manage, we'll, we'll survive, we'll just do what we have to do and we'll... And I, uh, one thing that really hurts me thinking back about it is that I not only disconnected from the event, but I disconnected from him as well, my child. So I started calling him an it and I started saying, just get it out. Um, and I just wanted to really just not be living this moment. And, um, yeah, I just, I think that's the hardest thing that was, is the fact that I disconnected from him in that moment. Um, it's something that you did out of a a way of coping and surviving. It's not something that you should take on as being... Yeah, I've all you like know, I abandoned it was just in the mo- Yeah, you didn't abandon him. Yeah. You've named him. Yeah. And you had a service for him and you acknowledge him now. Yeah. So, like, it's it was a, an odd timeline in that I found out that he had passed away and I called my husband and I can't even imagine what he went through. Because, <laughs> like, he was expecting me to call and say, yep, everything's fine. Yet I called him and said, hey, our baby's dead. Um, And, you know, he's at work. So he, um, luckily, his work is amazing. They literally just got one of the guys that he was working with, just drove him home um, and, or drove him to the hospital and he turned up at the hospital and 
like we kind of just went from there. So uh, there was a few, yeah, so the timeline's a bit odd in that we found out that he'd passed away. My husband came home and... Did you go home we together? Home. Did you wait in the hospital until he arrived? No, we actually had to go to Bunbury to have him. And we don't really know, well, since since this happened, Bustleton um, midwife services, like the midwives and everything, have actually made changes in that Bustleton said that they, or decided, someone decided at Bustleton that they weren't equipped to let me give birth there, or they weren't able to let me give birth there. I had to go to Bunbury. So we went home and because I wasn't in labour, he he was like, oh, I wasn't, nothing was happening. He was just dead. Um, so we had this kind of day between when I found out. So I found out in the evening, like nine o'clock and then um, kind of hung around at the hospital, I suppose, for that night. And then in the morning we went home and packed our bags to go up to Bunbury and then in Bunbury, um, they induced me. So um, I had the balloon Foley catheter thing, um, and that just kick-started labour. Like I didn't have to have any medications to force it on or anything like that. And it was probably one of the most horrific births I've had of all of them. Um, the epidural didn't work for the first time, so they had to come back and redo the epidural. Um, and it was just, it was just the worst thing ever. What did they say to you to help prepare you for doing that birth? <clears throat> well, they sent a chaplain in. Um, it didn't really help us um, because he was just talking about religion, basically, and we're not religious, so we just kind of were like, yep, okay, whatever. Just did that, yeah. Out you go, buddy. Um <laughs> No, for us it was really the, the bigger decisions were um, if we were going to meet him and at the time, because I had disconnected from it all, I had said no. I said just get it out and let's just go home. Um, and a few, I think a midwife had said, I really think you should consider meeting your baby. Um, and And now like... There is no way I was not going to meet him. Like in that birthing suite, I was like, there is no way I'm leaving this hospital without seeing my baby. Um, but I did, I did ask them to because we didn't know what was wrong. I was afraid that I was going to see a disfigured child or something that I didn't want to see. Um, so I did actually ask them to take him or like I gave birth. Sorry. That's all right. I gave birth and they took him and cleaned him up and put a beanie on him and brought him back all cute. (laughs) Um, And I am so lucky that I actually have a sister who's a photographer. And in that time between he died and giving birth, my sister had come up from Denmark and um, when, I, when we were about to give birth, I called her because she was in Basso. I called her and said, yep, yeah, we're probably going to have the baby in the next hour. And so she came up and um, literally between the time I gave birth and when they took him out, she came in. And, like, this just happened to be the time that she arrived. And so when they brought him in and we met him, she was there to take photos. And, yeah, like, she just took some of the most amazing photos and... I feel really sorry for people who don't have that service. Um, There are actually a few photographers 
in Western Australia who offer that as a service for free. Oh, that's um, so if there is anyone who, you know, loses their child and has the time to organise it, that um, there are photographers that will rush to a hospital and take photos for people who have lost a child. And my sister did decide to offer that service as well, but um, she found, I think, she had, she ended up having second thoughts in because it was such a confronting moment for her because it was her nephew as well as, you know, it's, it's for one, it's a, a baby that's passed away, but for her it was a family member as well. Yeah. Um, and she just decided that she couldn't quite bring herself to do it again. So the photographers that do do that are amazing because they literally are just watching the most rawest of um, emotions. Yeah, gosh, that's such a um, that would be such a challenging. It would be thing so hard. <laughs> yeah, it would be extremely hard. Um, Was your family? Did your mum and dad come? No. So I we only we only held him and met him for maybe an hour. Um, they did offer us like a, a crib that can keep the baby cold. Um, but we just decided that we just met him and then said our goodbyes. Did you name him then or afterwards? Um, I think I think we had named him while we were waiting to wait, waiting to give a birth. Yeah, so we kind of knew what we were going to call him before he was born. Um, yeah, so when we we did meet him and we met him as William, definitely. Um, but yeah, he was. We only met him for about an hour and then that was it. Then um, we returned to the bedroom and I basically just said, put me to sleep. Um, so I was slept for about three days <laughs> with medicine because yeah. yeah. I just needed to not be, um, I don't know, conscious. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got some medication and went straight to sleep Um and then we left. We left Bunbury, which was an extremely hard thing to do, leaving your baby behind. Um, yeah, that is something nobody, nobody should ever have to do. Um, and then we went back to Basso Hospital and I spent, um, yeah, another couple of days there. Just to look after you? Just to, yeah, just for me to recover because I'd just given birth and as soon as, sorry, as soon as I'd given birth, it's like, I do not want any milk. Just, I cannot deal with having breast milk. So I went on a medication to stop me having, like, getting any milk. Um, But, yeah, so how did you, after obviously getting through that initial first stage of grief and loss, how did you start to move through these things and process what happened and well, your thoughts? Well, it's, it's a slow process because they send, well, we chose to, you don't have to, we chose to get an autopsy because he was a normal baby. Um, there was no reason for him to die in in himself. Like he was completely anatomically correct, perfect baby. There's no reason for him to die. The only anomaly was his, which we didn't know while I was actually pregnant, was his cord was a velamentous cord insertion. It was also hypercoiled and extra long. So we had this kind of trifecta of really bad things. 
Um, so his his blood supply and oxygen, his, his system was under a great deal of pressure when I was pregnant and we didn't know. And there was no reason to know. Most most times when a, a baby has a velamentous cord or one of those other anomalies, they see a reduced, um, like reduced growth because baby's not getting as much nutrition or they're just not being supported as well. So there's some indication that there's something. Yes, usually there is. But because he was a big baby, there was no reason to even think that there was an issue. So... Even if we had have known that he had this condition with his cord and placenta, it probably wouldn't have changed the outcome unless we delivered C-section extremely early, most likely. It's, yeah, it's, and, and because we had all three, like it's very uncommon to have all three of those those anomalies or abnormalities with that, that system. So obviously with a a loss and with birth and these sorts of things, we don't always know why these things happen. No. Is that the main theory as to why? So I wanted to get the, um, the autopsy because I was concerned that I was thinking, God, tell me I didn't eat something that had some kind of, you know, like soft cheese or I was thinking, hopefully I didn't accidentally kill him. Um, which I was really concerned about. Um, and that came back as, you know, there was no other reason. I do have my suspicions that it's, it, I, I don't know if I believe in coincidences. So um, the day before his death, I did go to that doctor's appointment and I had an iron infusion. And in some very, very rare cases, the iron infusion can increase the platelets in your blood and therefore making your blood thicker. I think that perhaps that put pressure on an already under pressure system and potentially just made it so difficult for his or for the placenta to work that it just stopped. And, um, you know, it could have been that it, I I feel like it was that. And so I feel a certain amount of guilt in that I was, I decided to have the bloody, the infusion, but there was no reason to not, to not have it, you know, at the time, like you don't think that, something that a doctor's going to prescribe you or, you know, they you know, I, I imagine as well for people who are anemic in pregnancy, it's encouraged. Um, and I tried the, the, um, tablets with Penny when I was pregnant with her and I just got so incredibly sick. So I was like, yeah, give me the infusion. I'm not going to even waste time with the tablets. Yeah. yeah There's no way of knowing that that was going to happen. I mean, with these things and coming to decisions, in yeah. your birth, it needs to be a decision that you all make together. And unfortunately, with any kind of intervention, there's always a possibility of... Yeah, that's exactly right. But something. we just... And that's the thing, like, we don't know. Um, you know, I've spoken to my doctor about it as well, and she's she said it is a possibility. But it's one of those things that is so rare that they're never going to say, don't do an iron infusion, because one you probably need to have this system which is under in such incredible pressure in the first place for that to even have an impact on someone's mm-hmm. pregnancy. So it could, yeah, it could have been that. It could have just been that he just wasn't meant to be. Um, and that's a huge part of how I've coped in that I've said, I've decided, you know what, this had to happen so that I can meet my next baby. Okay. So... Yeah, the processing of it all after it happened took a really long time because we went through that 
wait, waiting for the results for the autopsy and then waiting once they've come through, you know, he's technically a person. So we had to get a birth certificate and a death certificate and he had had to go through like a funeral home and everything like that. So we had to pick a casket. Not a cask, a cask of wine. Yeah, had a few of those. <laughs> I definitely had a few of those. No, um, we had to pick a casket and just decide uh, how we were going to lay him to rest, basically. So um, it was a lot of stuff that I just, yeah, you just, and it all costs so much as well, like, that I was so surprised. Like, my my nana actually paid for his... Um, the crematorium? Crematorium. He paid, my nana actually paid for his all his funeral costs and crematorium. So I was like, oh, th- nana. <laughs> I was like, nanas shouldn't be doing that for their grandbabies. Like, what the hell? Um, so anyway, she paid for all of that because it's like a ridiculous amount of money. Well, it's not ridiculous, but that's just how much it's it costs. Very expensive. Very expensive. Yeah. So just waiting for all those things to line up. So from the time that he actually died to the point where we had his, we had him back... Uh, would have been like a month. So, and it was like waiting for that, um, waiting to get him back and to actually have a service for him. It wasn't really until then that we could be like, oh, this chapter is kind of closed sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And get your closure. Um, Or say your goodbyes, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's exactly right. So. And how did you talk this all through with Penny? Um, she was... Um, almost two, and she didn't really understand um, even the concept of pregnancy, I don't think. Like, I don't think they really get it. Um, so she wasn't really impacted. She knew that I was crying a lot, and she mentioned it a few times, like, why are you crying again, Mum? Things like that. But otherwise, she... And she knows who... She knows all about him. Like, I actually got in the hospital... Once I'd returned from the birthing suite, they had this little box and I imagine it's similar, like it'd be the similar to the same kind of box you get once you've had a live child. It's got like a teddy bear in it and like all these pamphlets of stuff. Whereas for me it was pamphlets about chaplaincy and um, all the other services, services for counselling and things like that. But they had this little teddy bear in there. So I took her the teddy bear home and I said to her that, her brother couldn't come home, but he decided to give her this teddy bear. <laughs> um, and she is her favourite teddy bear even God. still today. And we call that teddy bear Billy because, like, William, Billy. Billy. So it's Billy and it's still her favourite teddy. And she often will say things like, oh, my brother got me this because he couldn't come home. Um, oh, that's so And I remember saying to her once, she was like, so where is William then if he died? And I was like, well, and I just was like, this is in the car. And I was like, oh, I, was, I wasn't prepared for this deep yeah. conversation at this point. <laughs> and I said to her, I was like, oh, he's he's a shooting star now. I just kind of came up with something. Yeah. She's like, what do you mean he's a shooting star? And I said, yeah, so we all become shooting stars when we die. And um, I said, one day I'll be a shooting star and one day you'll be a shooting star as well. And she's like, Oh, she's like, that sounds really scary. I said, that's okay. I'll be up there. I'll be waiting for you. And she's like, well, will you hold my hand? I was like, oh. I was like, oh my gosh. I said, yes, I'll be holding your hand and William will be there. And she's like, oh, that sounds like really good fun. 
I can't oh. wait to be a shooting star. And I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> I've made this too appealing. Yeah, yeah you're like, yes, you can wait there to be a shooting let's just, star. Let's just wait for becoming shooting stars. Oh. Yeah, so she's got this little teddy bear from oh, um, William. Gorgeous. And, yeah, she loves it. So it's still her most favourite teddy bear. She takes it everywhere. Like, you know, it's in her bed. It's... If we go somewhere, it comes with us. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. That's so that actually that's... I've had, like, just a really odd, like, it was, my, well, we were down at my sister's and at this point we had my son Ewan, who is two now. Um, so I had my two nephews and Penny and Ewan and P- Penny's holding Billy. And I was like, oh, it's like a photo. Oh, yeah, and my sister took a photo of it. And I was like, oh, it's all of them in one photo. Oh, my god! <laughs> it was so nice. So I was just like, oh, he's kind of like part of our family. That's, that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. He's there. He's around. Yeah. It was like actually when I saw the basket in the room, I was like, oh, thanks. I was like, thanks for the teddy bear that I can't give to my child because my child's dead. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, I'll give it to my other one. <laughs> There's a reason for it. And actually it was like as soon as I got in there and I, I saw it, like I actually was cuddling that bear to go to sleep because I was like I just needed something. something to hold. Yeah. So, yeah. So you mentioned there that you've got another son. Yes. You and So, well. But before that. <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, the story kind yeah. of still takes another dive. So after this after pregnancy the, and birth after William. Yes. How long until you decide to try again? So I tried, oh gosh, it would have been maybe three months. Yeah, it would have been three months because the next little girl that we had um, at 18 weeks, her due date would have been around about the same as what Williams would have been if he had been born. So yeah, it would have been maybe three months. So yeah, we decided to try again. And um, oh, the nurses at the IVF clinic are just the most ama- some of the most amazing nurses you've ever met. Like they, like I literally walked in and they were like crying. Like when I told them, because I obviously called and I said, like, because there's so many people that I had to tell that I'd met, like that I'd lost William. I had to call the fertility clinic and say that baby died, um, and, I'm, and coming back. I'm coming back. And they were like, what? Uh, yeah, so are those conversations amazing. really hard, or did you work out a way to try to s- switch off and compartmentalize just to yeah get well, through that, those? Conversations? I kind of just became quite stoic with it and okay. just kind of held it together for yeah. most of the time. Like I, I think I cried probably cried a little bit with the nurses, but just generally, like I did bump into a few people after I had William because I was so so pregnant at um, twenty nine weeks. You know, it's not. You look, can't hide you're, that. You're proper pregnant, you know. You've got a big belly, and I had a few, quite a few friends who were pregnant at the same st- at the same time. Yeah, it was quite difficult actually coming back and people going, "Oh, you, you did you have your baby?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I did." And like, "Oh, what did you call him?" And they're all excited. And then, the, and I'm like, "Yeah, he he actually passed away." And then they just, it was quite um, confronting the first few times because when I would say it the shock and horror on these people face, these people's faces and then they'd start crying and then I'd be like, I'd be comforting them. And, and I was like, it was just this really, it's a really bizarre kind of, yeah, it's really bizarre. Like how to navigate that conversation because yeah. you don't want to. I don't want to upset them, but I'm like, I also need. But to, this happened. This happened and I don't want to not, because otherwise they're going to go along thinking that my baby's alive. And then, so anyway, yeah, there was a few, few tough conversations, but I kind of got used to it. And even now, like in conversations, like obviously I'm bawling my eyes out here, but generally now in conversations, I can quite happily talk about you, um, William and 
you know, I, I try and very much keep him as like, I think the, the, mo- the most difficult thing, sorry, is probably when people ask me how many kids I've got, yeah. because I feel like I'm, I feel like I, I, I personally really want to include the children that I've lost. Um, like I would say four, um, but I only have two uh, that are alive. So what do you say? I just say two. <laughs> Or if it's someone, it, it just depends to. as well. Like, it, yeah, you kind of have to read the situation um, and it depends how the person, the questions are asked and they'll say, oh, how many, like, you know, just, yeah, it just depends on the casualness of yeah. that conversation, I suppose. No, such a tricky one. Yeah. But it's kind of like, I don't want to pretend that my son didn't live. Like, yeah, I don't want to not include one of my children. I feel terrible for that. Yeah. I was like, you don't want to, yeah, it's one of your children yeah. sort of thing. So he was born. Yeah. He was here. So yeah. it's kind of a tricky one. Um, and so I even I avoid asking people that question now, okay. though, as a result. Like I'll ask it in a way that they can answer, they can the, answer the, the question yeah. sort of thing. So it would be like, oh, do you have another son? Or like, a, or like a, or say, do you have a brother? Yeah. Rather than saying, oh, how many kids have you got kind yeah. of thing. So, or, you know, I'll try, try and ask it in a cryptic way that it's not, I'm not potentially asking because once you ha- have one, uh, once you have a stillborn, you start hearing all these other stories of like, oh, yeah, that person had a stillborn as well. Or even my nana was like, I had a stillborn. And I was like, did wow. you? <laughs> so, um, yeah, just sort of, it kind of opens up this conversation with a lot of other people who probably, yeah, just don't, don't count their children as their I children. I think what, yeah, still stillborns and miscarriages and, you know, all of that areas, different grey areas on how we define life. Yes, it is, yeah. And so, yeah, there's so much of this out there that we don't know, that we don't talk about because it's it's vulnerable, it's scary yeah. and it's hard at times. So, yeah, it's um, I had a few a tricky. few times where I'd say, oh, yeah, I, I actually had a, a child at 29 weeks who was stillborn they go, and like they'll have been telling me that they'd had a miscarriage and they go, oh, mine wasn't as bad as yours. And I'm like, yes, it was. You lost a child as well. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter at what stage. Like you lost your hope. You had these hopes and these dreams and this life planned around this tiny human and that got taken away from you. So it's not. It's probably more tra- it may maybe more traumatic in the phys- the physical sort of things, but he still lost a child. Like yeah. so, it's I've actually found that a few times that people are like, oh, I had a miscarriage, but it's not as bad as what you had. And I'm like, well, I feel like it's the same. <laughs> it's like don't don't yeah. make yours any less. Like yeah. you still had a loss. Like it yeah. doesn't matter at what stage yeah. you lost a child as well. That's their story, and this is your yeah, story. Exactly. And both have their place yeah, and absolutely. value. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so. Your daughter? Yes. How old or how far through was? I had quite a bit of anxiety about this pregnancy, um, but everything was kind of going completely normal and I even forgot to, like, book in my 12-week scan. I ended up having my 12-week scan at 15 weeks and, and I ended up getting a harmony test as well. And then we got the harmony test back to say that she was T21. And so that was, like... Devastating. We'd always decided, we, even before we fell pregnant, that if we were to ever have a child with a severe disability, that we wouldn't continue with a pregnancy. I really, because it took us so much to get to this point, I was like, surely not. Like, surely it's a mistake. 
so we ended up um, going and having a amniocentesis, mm-hmm. which is quite painful. But um, when we had, when we were at King Eddie and we were having the amniocentesis, the sir, the doctor there, the paediatrician, um, I'm not sure what his actual like degree or what he what he's but his he was like he was yeah. like a really up there like he was like the senior senior person who had all this experience in things anyway he was doing an ultrasound and he was also doing the amniocentesis and throughout the ultrasound before we actually began the amniocentesis he actually pointed out so many physical disabilities that she had and he said, mm-hmm. even if this child, he said, have you decided what you're going to do? Like this is before we did the amniocentesis. And we're like, well, yeah, we're pretty sure we're going to um, terminate the pregnancy. He was like, I'm so glad that you've said that because even if this child didn't have T21, it would be a matter of if it survived pregnancy, mm-hmm. if it survived birth, and then if it survived its first few hours of life because of the heart deformities and the physical disabilities that this child had. And he said, it's just not a life that anyone deserves. And so he was like, I'm really glad that that's where you've landed. Um, So then even when he did that, like when he did the scan, I was like, I don't even feel like we need to do the amnio anymore because he pointed out so much that that was physically wrong with her that I was like there's no way we could bring this child into the planet even if it didn't have t21 like there's just it would just be cruel so anyway we did the amnio and then we waited for the listeners the amniocentesis can you explain that yeah so process basically they have a very long needle and they put that in right in the center of your belly and it goes through your uterus um, and it just collects some of the cells, the liquid, the amniotic fluid, which contains the cells of the child. And then they, then they can actually do a check the DNA of that child against the skin cells. So they can actually see a hundred percent sure. Yes, this child has got T, is T21 or what disability that child may have. So, um, it's just really basically just a hundred percent stamp certified, yes, this is what your child has. Um, And because I just wanted to be so 100% sure because I have a friend who had a child diagnosed with something, I I can't remember, but it was something, I think it's that thing where there's like too much fluid in there and there's a potential for a really severe disability. Um, And their child got diagnosed with that at 18 weeks and they ended up having a term terminating that child at 20 weeks and the ultrasound came back. I mean, sorry, the autopsy came back as that child being completely normal. Oh my God. So I was like, I'm not going to be, (laughs) I can't do that. Um, And it's still so hard to see and tell what's going on in there. They're still little. And like, um, and and this other couple, like they've had a little son since and they're as well, like I lent really heavily on her at this time because I was like, what do I do? Like, how did you cope? How did you go through this? Because I don't know, I don't know what to think. Like, I feel really terrible because I'm terminating this child, but what kind of life would this child have if I didn't? And it's such a heated topic. Like I, like it's not that anyone's ever said to me that abortion or terminating a pregnancy is bad, but because you hear it in the media and you hear like, and the campaign for anti-abortion, especially in America is so loud. And you just think, oh, I really don't want to upset someone or get some, I don't really don't want to have this conversation with someone where they're going to tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing. 
um, because it's the right thing for me to do and the right thing for this child as well. But And only you and your husband <laughs> can come up to, yeah. with that decision. And I just was like, I don't, do I tell people that I've had this? Because mm-hmm. I don't want someone to like tell me that I did the wrong thing or tell mm-hmm. me that their opinion that... I've murdered a child. And Regardless, so, it's not an easy decision. Yeah, I was like, do you think it was what I wanted to do? Mm. Like, <laughs> I didn't want to do it. Mm. It wasn't. And so that's the thing. Like, people have said, oh, is it, is it an easy decision? I'm like, it was an easy decision because we decided from the very beginning that we weren't going to have a child with a disability. And because we had our daughter, it just wasn't, we didn't want to put that on her. But also we didn't want to put this on this child. So it was an easy decision in that, but it's still a really difficult decision because there's always that what if. But then when we had the amnio, I was like, oh, there's there's no doubt in my mind that this child is not for us. Yeah, so we had like from the amnio, we had like maybe five days of just kind of waiting around for the result. And then it was going to be how how do you want to terminate this pregnancy? I decided to give birth. I didn't want to do a medical like removal because it would just sounded too violent for me. Um, so I was How like, how many weeks were you? Sorry. So I was I was eighteen weeks pregnant when we actually gave birth, and yeah, so we went up to King Eddie and we just I took the the tablets and it was um, my husband struggled a lot more with it than I did at, with this pregnancy. It was he disconnected again. He totally removed himself from this pregnancy. He was like, get it out. I don't even want to like think about you having a child in your tummy at the moment. And for me, I was like, this was different in that I was like, no, I'm not going to react like that this time. So I actually took a, I was really intentional with the way that I spoke about her and the way that I thought about her. And so that the like the two weeks between the harmony test coming back and giving birth to her, I was constantly holding like at that time you don't really have a belly, but I was constantly holding my belly and trying to send as much love to her as possible. And I was telling her all the time that I loved her and that I was sorry and that, you know, that she was like it was just like trying to explain, basically explaining to her and just connecting like, with connecting her, with right? her and yeah, and just being so intentional about the way that I thought and thought of her and thought about her. So like my husband was his total opposite and I'm like, it's okay. Like she's just a baby. It's not her fault. Like, like, let's just love her. Like this is who she is. And this is the only time we're going to have with her as well. And so I have a lot more fond memories of those last moments with, we called her Poppy. Um, I have these really fond moments, the final moments that I had with her because I had the time to really think about how I wanted to react to this moment. Whereas with William, it was just like, bam, your baby's passed away and you're going to have it like in, tomorrow. It was the next day. Yeah. And, yeah. and so as well, I think with William, I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't appreciate or think about my pregnancy. Like, you know, I was just going through the day-to-day emotions. I wasn't like nurturing my belly or like thinking about like all putting loving memories and thoughts into him. And like, I was just like getting on, getting on with it. I had a two-year-old. I was like, yep, or almost two-year-old. I was just getting the day done and like getting home to put my feet up. And so, but with Poppy, I had this time to kind of like really connect with her. And so, you know, the last moments of her life for me were really beautiful. Um, I'm going to cry again. (laughs) Um, I'll try not to. So I was in the hospital and I think my husband was like really hungry. So we had, 
we had this little suite to ourselves and um, I'd had the medication and I was in, was just basically just waiting for, for um, labour to start. And he went off to go and get a beer or something because we were in the city. He went off and got a beer and some lunch, dinner. And so at that time the sun was setting and our window was like looking right at the sunset. I could see the beach because King Eddie's actually quite close to the beach. And so I could see the sun setting just a glimpse of water and I just sat, like I just stood there watching the sun go down and holding my belly and swaying and singing songs. It was just like this really beautiful moment and the best thing that I could do for her in her final hours sort of thing. Like, so just I'm really glad that I got to give her that and just constantly telling her that I loved her and that I was sorry and, yeah, it was just like a really beautiful moment. Um Giving birth to a baby at 18 weeks is fairly easy. Like she was very small, as all 18-week babies are, but um, definitely not what I expected to see, I suppose, because she's born. She's still very pink. She's still see-through. She's still very much a fetus. And so when I actually gave birth to her, the midwife or the, the nurse came in and she took her away and they actually brought her back with a tiny little beanie on and um, in like wrapped up in like a little blanket and she, it was very cute. But on the same token, I was like, I don't need to hold this back. Like I, I held her, she, they brought her in, yeah, in a really tiny really. little basket and she was in this little tiny basket, but she was just so tiny and and so raw, I suppose. That sounds really, I don't want to get too graphic because... You just, it was, it was like people have said to me, oh, was she just gorgeous? And I'm like, oh, she really wasn't. Like, she looked like a fetus. Like, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, she wasn't like... Um, she wasn't like a full proper baby, baby. yet. Yeah. You know, she was still very pink and red. And, um, you know, she, although she had a little face, everything wasn't quite in the, the right spot yet. And she was still a little bit like fish-like, I suppose. <laughs> But she was still cute because she had a little beanie on and she had this tiny basket with a little tiny teddy bear. And so we got and they took little handprints for her. And so I've got handprints of William as well, but I've got little tiny handprints and footprints from her. And they're they're only like a 10 cent piece, like as big as a 10 cent piece. So she was super tiny and giving birth was, you know, just sitting on the toilet and it was basically the same sort of feeling of just doing that. Um, so they still sort of induce labour and you just go through the normal yeah. neighbor, labour process. Yeah. And, so okay. I did ask them, I was really sure to ask them, like, how the drugs worked. Like, is she going to feel any pain? And they just said, it literally just, this drug will turn off the placenta so she'll just go to sleep. And then okay. this drug will induce labour. So there was basically a drug to end the pregnant or kill the, the baby. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. End the pregnancy. Yeah. End the pregnancy. I know. I was like, how do I say this first thing? And I ended up saying it really not nicely. Um, here's a drug that, yeah, will stop your baby's heart or, you know, end the pregnancy. And this one will make you have the, the baby or the product. Um, so, yeah, it was it was actually quite nice. Probably the worst thing about it was just being at King Eddie. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It's really bad just, there. Uh, well, it's a lot of high... Um, it's intensive sort it's, of. Yeah, the, the people that are generally going to King Eddie if they're pregnant, they're not in the best ways. You know, there's a lot of women out the front smoking. There are a lot of, like not all of the not all of the patients that are going to King Eddie are like that, but the ones that you see out the front and as you're walking into the, the hospital definitely are. And I was just walking there, I'm like, you bitches. Like, mm, <laughs> you're not looking like, after I'm your like, body. I was like, how dare you? I'm walking in here for like the 10th time, well, not the 10th, but, you know, again, here I am again doing this and you guys just are just 
well, what are you doing? Yeah, trashing um, your body. The doctor actually said to us when we were there, he's like, I'm really sorry that you had to walk in and you probably saw all the women out the front. And I was like, yeah, I did. I said it wasn't great. And he was like, yeah, feel free to punch them on your way out. Oh, okay. So, oh. Doc- so he prescribing that as a doctor? Yeah. He's like, I certainly am. <laughs> because I was like, yeah, you guys are working your asses off trying to keep these babies alive and these parents yeah, are just that. doing nothing to help you. And so he's like, yep, that's pretty much oh, our job so here. Sad. So, so yeah, it was pretty horrible going into King Eddie, but that all happened and the recovery was really quick. It was really fine. And we end up getting her because she wasn't 21 weeks, which you have to be to be considered a human. She, we didn't have to do a death certificate or anything like that. We literally, she got cremated and we got her remains and um, it was a really simple sort of process. Okay. Two yeah. very different <clears throat> processes. <laughs> and I think it's all around it sort of reminds me of another podcast that I interviewed that I've done recently that hasn't come out yet, but this concept of grief, but also trauma and, and change of identity. And and I think that is with William, where you had a certain identity that you were going to be stepping into being his mum and having him here. And he was taken away unexpectedly. Yes. And this, other birth with Poppy. Yes. I don't want to get Poppy and Penny I know, mixed up. I know, it's like difficult. <laughs> was a time where you were able to prepare and yeah. process? It definitely um, set me up to be able to handle that situation a lot better. Mm. Don't want to have to do it again. No, of course. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely, Ewan has, I mean, sorry, not Ewan, William um, definitely uh, made me stronger in definitely being able to. I think take the time to think about how I wanted to react to the to the moment because I was so disappointed in my in the way that I reacted to him dying, and I get that it was just like a survival technique for me at that point, but as well like just being able to, to take that time and really think about how I wanted to to be and being intentional and yeah he definitely set me up taught me a lot of things in that moment definitely so. After this <laughs> yes, you decided again you were going to yes. keep trying because you wanted to have your um, another. You want to have another baby. Yes. So at this point, my husband, like I was, kind of like I am done. I don't think I okay. can do this again. I was like I I would be quite happy to not do this again because I was just so over it. And my husband was like, no, we are not ending on this note. Like. We cannot be defeated and this be our story. So he didn't like, obviously he didn't force me no, having a, another baby, but he was like, I would really like to go again and I don't want our story to end here. And I was like, okay, let's go again and we'll see what happens. So, so how long did you give yourself to oh, sort of um, process those emotions and move She was to the born next in the April and I would have had... So it would have been maybe five months. Okay. Yeah, I did take a pretty big breather after Poppy. Mm-hmm. Well, I say big. It was big to me because, like, I look at that as, as time wasted again. But it would have been maybe five or six months of a break. Okay. I think we, we tried again in October. We tried in the October. So she was born in April and we tried in October. Mm-hmm. And that's when we fell pregnant with you and mm-hmm. with, that, with, with that next cycle. And that was an extremely stressful pregnancy. Okay, of course. COVID came out. Oh, okay. I was like, of course, I'm pregnant. There's a global pandemic as well. Like, because my doctor now was 
so highly stressed um, from it all. She was like, oh, she's like, I love you, but can this be the last one? (laughs) I was like, I promise this will be the last one. So yeah, I was under the thumb very much with that pregnancy, being made sure like I was having regular blood tests, regular scans. Like I had so many scans of this baby. So I didn't know the gender for Penny and I did know the gender for William and their pregnancies were so different. So when I fell pregnant with Poppy, I knew straight away that I was having a girl. And so, and then when I was pregnant with uh, Ewan, I knew straight away that I was having a boy, but I didn't know. Yeah. Like, so I knew, but obviously I didn't have strange. You just had a feeling that. Oh, well, there was two things. When I was pregnant with the girls, I had, I got six weeks, I got angioedema and urticaria. So like bad, like I looked, my lips swelled up, my eyes swelled up. I had these plaque hives all over me with Penny and I got it, I got it, but not as bad with Poppy, but I didn't get it with either of the boys' pregnancies. But as well, I was having so many scans that I saw things in these scans and I was like, that, that's not a, that's, that's definitely that's a, a penis. <laughs> that's definitely a boy. Um, so I just had, I just knew like, and then there was one we had, oh, at one point they're like, oh yeah, we hear a murmur. So you have to go back up to Perth for a cardiologist. And I was like, of course. And then anyway, we walked in, he goes, oh, so do you know if you're having a boy or a girl? And I was like, no, we don't know. So he knew. <laughs> yeah. And I was oh. like, and we, when we left, I was like, I feel like he told us we were having a boy. And Scott's like, yeah, he told us we're having a boy. I was like, I already knew that anyway. But yeah, obviously we hadn't had anyone actually tell us that we were having a boy, but he kind of accidentally let it slip. I was so extremely stressed during this pregnancy. Because you were worried about losing the baby? I was worried about losing it. I was worried that this was not going to be, that this was just going to end up in the same shit show that the last two kind of ended up in. Yeah, I was, and because I was having constant contact with my doctor and scans and stuff, I just, to have that reassurance that he was fine or this baby was fine, that um, I just couldn't relax and I just really wanted it out. So I wanted him out. I just wanted to have him. I just wanted him to be out and safe. Like for me, I was thinking the safest place for this baby is to just be born so I can look after it. And then I was like, oh no, cot death. (laughs) Oh, I know. That's the thing, isn't it? There's always something that can stress you out as a mum regardless. And I, I mean, obviously I haven't gone through what you've been through, but I remember even from the first point of knowing that I was pregnant and going, oh, you know, the first All three the months, oh, you're so wrong. nervous. Like, you don't want to lose it. You want to hold on to it. And then I remember getting into my mind and thinking, there's always going to be something yeah. that stresses yeah. you out that you're going to lose that baby. Yeah. And it's like, how do you capture that? Yeah. And I could just imagine that being like a hundred thousand oh. fold with your pregnancy. There's just pregnancy. insecurity about the, like, of this pregnancy of it actually becoming a child. Mm. So at, I think it was like 36, 35 weeks, because I had given birth at 35 weeks with PJ, they were like, okay, we want to make sure that you're not going to give birth again at 35 weeks. So at 35 weeks, I was having um, regular ECGs like every other day to make sure that everything was going fine um, and that he was doing what he normally did. But for me, I just like, I just want to get to 37 weeks. I don't want to birth anywhere else. I just want to birth in Bustleton at 37 weeks. Yeah, 37 weeks rolled around and I saw my doctor and she's like, all right, let's get this show on the road. And I was like, perfect. So I was like, we had a stretch and sweep. She's like, I'm not supposed to, but 
we did a stretch and sweep and I, I think I did a stretch and sweep in at about two o'clock. I went and had castor oil at like three o'clock. <laughs> Start bouncing on a ball and eating chili. <laughs> a couple of days before that we were having sex. I was like, yeah, let's just do everything to get this kid out. Um, there was even a cold, uh, a low pressure system, like a storm that night. I was like, yes, I am just ticking all the boxes. <laughs> so the day that I had the stretch and sweep and the castor oil and the storm, I had the castor oil at three by 7 p.m., I was having contractions <laughs> and then so I went to the hospital. My husband was at work again. I was, just went to the hospital and they're like, yeah, not just yet, but it's going to happen. And so I messaged my husband. I'm like, yeah, it's probably going to happen tonight. Da, da, da. And then like um, at about 11 o'clock I was like, yeah, this is game on. Because like so even that night I said to Scott, I was like, I'm just going to stay at mum and dad's because that way I don't have to put PJ into the car, drive her over to mum and dad's. I was like, we'll just stay here. She can stay asleep. I'll just knock on mum's door. I'll just knock it. I'll just stuck out for a second. I'll just just knock on mum's door and be like, okay, I'm going down to the hospital now. So yeah, like 11 o'clock, I just chat the door. I'm like, okay, I'm going to head back down to the hospital. I'm in labor now. So I just drove myself down there and I messaged my husband. I'm like, yeah, you might want to come down because I'm not going anywhere anymore. And so, and I said to the lady, I was like, so can I have my epidural yet? And she's like, not just yet. We'll just wait and see. And then in the next half an hour, I had, a, had an epidural. And so like by the time I'd contacted my husband to come back from Bustleton, when the nurse said no epidural, he got to, to Bustleton and I had an epidural. I was just sitting there with my lemonade. And I'm like, this is great. Let's just get this show on the road. So, um, and my doctor was on shift as well, on call. So I was like, perfect. I timed it perfectly. So good. I know. So you I was, never get your doctor. I know. I got my doctor as well. And she was like, hey. And I was like, I told you. I, was, I said, I'm having him on 37 weeks. I think I had him at 7.30 and seven, oh, 37 and 2, I think, okay. by the time all the stretches and sweeps and all that had happened. But, um, yeah, so everything else, well, it wasn't a straightforward pregnant, uh, birth. Yeah, he wasn't really, he was turned around again. He was uh, posterior and then he started turning around in the canal and I couldn't get him out. So it got to the point where she was like, if you can't get this kid out in the next hour or 20 minutes, probably 20 minutes. She's like, I'm calling the doctor. She's like, I'm actually going to call the doctors now. If you can't get the baby out by the time they get here, you're going to go in for a C-section. And I was like, oh, no way. So <laughs> I got really got really serious at that, that point. The doctors were there and one of the, one of the other peds was looking and he's like, no, nah, the baby's too low now. We can't do the C-section. You're just going to have to, you have to get him out. Um, and so anyway, I eventually got pushed him out, but he was not breathing. He wasn't blue, but he didn't breathe. So he was on CPL vent. He was being breathed for for, the, for about three minutes for the when he came out. Oh my gosh! <laughs> okay, <clears throat> hang on. <laughs> Slow down. I know there's so many bits to so my story. So many things to your story. So okay, so they were going to do a C-section, yes. but. It, that ended up not being no, the best mani- option. No, I managed to get him out, yeah. yeah. I, got him, I got him low enough to the point where they were like, yeah. push." And we- so when he came out, what did they, did they just whisk him away straight away? Yeah, so I was on all fours. So they kind of just, you know, rugby threw him to me and he just wasn't, he was like kind of, he was still attached to the cord. So he still had oxygen. Like there was no issue there in that that was kind of still working for him. But he just didn't take his breath and he wasn't crying and he was kind, he wasn't he was kind of moving a little bit i suppose but they kind of just yeah they kind of just quickly snatched him and took him to the heater thing and at that time i actually i actually didn't even notice what was going on because with my first pregnancy with penny she got taken away from me quite quickly as well because i had to go and have my placenta removed mm. so for me they're like oh we're just going to take him over here 
And they're like, and then so the midwives had me just delivering the placenta and I looked at Scott and he was looking really stressed and I'm like, chill, man, it's fine. He's like, no, what's going on over there? And I'm like, it's fine. They're saying that he's, because they they kept going, he's looking great, his blood pressure's fine, you know, he's a happy, healthy baby. They weren't saying he wasn't breathing, but Scott was looking going, no, something's not right. I'm going, chill out, man. So he's watching them quickly working. He, they're on watching him, him work on the baby. Yeah, but you're obviously. I'm this and that's world. probably a better place for you to yeah. be just trying yeah. to get your. To yeah, I had no idea what was going on. Um, but anyway, the three minutes later or whereabouts, thereabouts, they gave him back to me and they're like, here you go, here's your baby. They didn't say anything about oh, it. Okay. And so I had no idea. And But he did have this little tag on his foot, like a little um, oxygen thing on his foot. Yeah. And so for the rest of the night, you know, everyone kept coming in and at one point they said, oh, we're just going to take baby away for a few more tests. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I didn't think anything of it. What they were doing is they were doing x-rays to check his lungs, doing more blood tests to make sure to check his, because there's a certain level in their blood when they don't breathe when they first come out, that if it doesn't doesn't steadily increase, then it would have been a trip to King or to King Eddie or the children's hospital or something mm-hmm. like that. But his blood work all looked fine and everything. So, but at this time they weren't telling me this at, mm. during this, at this time of day. So I think I gave birth to him at about two o'clock or one o'clock in the morning. And then at like eight o'clock, my doctor came in. She's like, okay, let's talk about the birth. I'm like, yeah, what about it? And she's like, well, didn't go to plan. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? And so then that's when they were telling me all about it. I'm like, oh, so that's what's Makes been sense. going on. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, so you're going to stay here for a few days so we can keep an eye on baby. And I was like, oh, okay then. And I, so for so me. So for you, it was like, no, yeah. it did go to plan. I've got my baby out. Yeah, I was like, I mean, yeah. it's fine. But she was like, no, it didn't go to plan. Okay. And I was like, oh, okay, well. As long as they're monitoring him yeah, and it. it was being looked after, yeah. it was a, it was a it was good fine for you. Yeah, yeah I was like, great. okay, and the little beeper thing so that if he if his O2 went any lower than something that it would beep and... So was he fine in the end? There yeah, wasn't anything fine. after that that yeah, went wrong? It, it doesn't, like, it's not a precursor to anything else down the track. He's not going to have issues with anything. Like, three minutes to do, to be having, like, breathing for them is not really that long. Like, they've had a kid for 18 hours mm. come out, be completely normal. Like, they were like, this is, let's put this into perspective here. We've had kids flowing because they've just not been, they've just not started breathing. It's just that there's something that just hasn't kick-started yeah. their natural reaction or their so, natural trigger to breathe. Mm. So it could be that he went to breathe in um, during labour but couldn't. So he went, oh, well, I'm not meant to do it yet, so I'll just, just stop. wait. I'll just wait. But then it didn't kick-start sort of mm. thing. So it could have been that or it could have just been that he was exhausted. It could have been anything. So yeah. Well, it wasn't really stressful for me, but my husband was pretty stressed. <laughs> oh, your poor husband as well. He's been through just as <laughs> he's, he's very damaged from the whole process. <laughs> so um, I want to know what was it like seeing your daughter meet your son for the first yes. time and seeing your family complete? Oh, it was there. pretty amazing. She's not the most maternal child. So <laughs> for her to see him, she was like, oh, oh, yeah, it's okay. Like, what does it do? I was like, oh, just he's a baby, you know, is this your brother? And she's like, oh, cool. Can I have a biscuit? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, Any yeah. food? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was lovely seeing her meet him, but she just wasn't really that interested. So there's about four years between them. But, yeah, she's just not 
the maternal type, which is fine. I was going to say, it sounds like what mum wasn't the maternal type either before yeah, this no, whole process. She, oh, no, I wasn't. But, um, yeah, she's still not paternal. She's still like, oh, how long is this guy hanging around for? <laughs> like, still a while yet, kiddo. Where am I? Who's your brother? Um, oh. Then she'll be like, oh, I wish I had a sister. And like, yeah, well, you've got a brother. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was really lovely. It was actually just kind of like, oh, it was like a big sigh of relief but as well like still that anxiety of the insecurity of this of of this child you know really like you know this is the first couple of weeks or the first two months of them being alive that you're like is this for is this real like is this gonna last sort of thing and that's kind of how I felt like I was feeling for that entire you know first six weeks was like okay are we sure this is baby's gonna be here forever now like is this it um so yeah it's just that insecurity that I really had to work through from there. But, yeah, the relief of kind of going. And in my mind, like in deep inside, I was like, if this baby should die, I'm not doing it again. I'm done. Like this is this is it for me. I was like, I am not doing this ever again. I can't put myself through it. I can't put my husband through it. It's just we've got PJ. Let's just be happy with three of us sort of thing. And, like, I at the time, like, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'll give Penny a sibling and I'll make her, they'll have, they'll have like, a best friend forever. It's actually Fight Club in my house. Like, it is serious. <laughs> I've ruined her life by getting her a sibling. <laughs> so I've gone through all this traumatic stuff to give her a sibling. Be like, here you go. She's just like, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> when they're older, you never know. Maybe they'll oh, come crossed. together. <laughs> uh. And so at the start of this conversation, you mentioned to me that you had those 12 embryos yes and you were wondering you were looking at them yep and you were I will never gonna use I'm not doing all this I'm not doing this 12 times there's no way so this leads us into the next part of your story which is going to be the next part of this podcast because we're going to split it into two and you're going to talk to us about what happened with the other embryos yes what did happen (laughs) thank you for listening to unscripted with alex This show was brought to you by Batika Co. 